From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. Maps are fascinating to look at. At least they always have been in my mind. And oftentimes, when I'm trying to learn something about an area, the first thing I do is I get a map out and look at it. Maps have lots of things on them. They have roads, they have rivers, they have property markers sometimes, and sometimes they have names. And when I was thinking of what I was going to do for this episode of Land Stories, the, the names that occur on maps is what occurred to me first. And I have worked at Lansing Community College for many years, and one of the great joys of working at Lansing Community College is being able to walk around the city of Lansing on one's lunch break, which I did for many years when I worked at our downtown campus. And being a historian and somebody who has always been fascinated at how places got their names... I used to always look at the street names, especially when I first started working at the college and hadn't lived in Lansing for very long, and thought to myself, well, some of these is pretty easy to figure out what they're named after. A lot of the streets in downtown Lansing are named after Michigan counties. So we have a Kalamazoo Street, we have an Elegant Street, we have a Washtenaw Street, and so on and so forth. Um, But there are other streets that are named after people. Seymour Street, for example, is named after one of the very first people from the state of New York to come to Lansing. The state of New York actually turns out to be the source of a lot of place names, not only in Lansing, but in Michigan. And it is the source for the name of Lansing itself. Now, in this episode of Land Stories, we're going to talk about names, particularly the name Lansing. Where does it come from? How did Lansing come to be named Lansing? And probably the most interesting part of the story, at least in my mind, is who was John Lansing Jr., the man that Lansing, Michigan, is named after? And I personally find that second part of our Land Stories story here, who John Lansing Jr. was, to be the most interesting part. And I hope you do too. So, Lansing, Michigan, turned out to be a place that eventually would attract a lot of settlers from New York. And as it turns out, a lot of the very first people who came into Michigan from other parts of the United States did come from New York. There are many counties, cities, and streets within those cities that have a New York connection. And Lansing happens to be one of them. There are a lot of reasons for that, the uh, biggest of which being in the 1820s, one of America's first great engineering accomplishments occurred, and that was the completion of the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal allowed for one to navigate waters all the way from New York City to the Great Lakes, which meant people could get on a barge and they could travel from places in New York State to Lake Erie. At that point, they could take a ship to Detroit and from there embark on their new life in the frontier lands of Michigan. And that's a story that many people had as part of their family history when Michigan's being settled. Lansing turned out to be 
an important person in New York history, John Lansing Jr. was born in Albany, New York in 1754. The 30th of January, actually, 1754. Lansing came from a family of Dutch ancestry, which was quite common in New York at the time, actually. If we turn the story back a few more years, New York was actually founded as New Amsterdam. New York City was. It was founded as New Amsterdam because the colony of New York was actually founded as New Netherland by the Dutch way back in the early 1600s. After a series of wars with the British, eventually the British gained hold of that colony and they renamed it New York, both the colony and the city, named in honor of the Duke of York. So the Dutch were actually the first Europeans to settle into the Hudson River Valley. And their ancestry, therefore, can be traced back centuries. And the Lansing family enters into our picture precisely along these lines. A Lansing ancestor who came from the eastern part of the Netherlands immigrated to the Dutch colony. And from that point on, established the Lansing family. So by the time John Lansing Jr. comes into this world on 30th of January 1754, the Lansing family had already been quite prominent in that part of New York. John Tenike Lansing Jr., he turned out to have quite the life. And we're going to get to that in a moment here, but let's first jump ahead a little bit in our chronology and complete the story of how Lansing, Michigan came to be and came to be named after John Lansing Jr. And we have to go back to when Michigan was first established as a territory, which is right after the Revolutionary War ended, actually. Congress created a big territory called the Northwest Territory, and Michigan was part of that. A few years later, the Michigan Territory itself was established to encompass basically what is now Michigan and Wisconsin. And then the United States went to war with the British again. That would be the War of 1812. And a very important event happened during that war that would forever change the future of Michigan. That event would be when the American commander surrendered the fort, Fort Detroit, to the British. William Hall was the governor of the Michigan Territory at the time, and being the governor of the Michigan Territory in 1812, more or less encompassed being the commander of Fort Detroit. There really wasn't a lot of activity going on in other parts of Michigan that necessitated a substantial governance structure. Now, that would change. Settlers would move into the territory in droves, actually, after the War of 1812. But for the time being, think of Michigan as, as a fairly desolate populated frontier outpost that had a substantial population of people that were not of European ancestry. Those would be the indigenous Anishinaabe peoples of Michigan who would stay for a number of years until they were forcefully removed by the government in the 1830s. That is an episode uh, that will be forthcoming, so at one point we will discuss that here on Land Stories. But for now, we're going to look at Michigan starting in 1812 with the surrender of Detroit to the British. The Americans got Detroit back, they got all of Michigan back, 
And in doing so, people started moving into Michigan, many of whom came from New York. And after the Erie Canal was completed, even more people moved into Michigan, so much so that by 1837, Michigan was admitted into the Union as a state. Now, part of the agreement that Congress made with Michigan by admitting her into the Union as a state involved the state legislature agreeing to move the capital away from the border with British Canada within 10 years of admission into the Union. Detroit was seen as not a very good place for a capital of a state, given the fact that it had fallen to the British not that long before Michigan was admitted into the Union. So, legislature agrees to this, 1847 comes around, and it is time to pick a new capital city. As one might imagine, there were extensive lobbying efforts from pretty much every settled area in Michigan to have their town deemed the new capital. The state legislature grew tired of being lobbied so heavily, so what did they do? They went into a closed session of the legislature, and they ultimately selected an area that had just a couple dozen people known to be living in it at the time that was called Lansing Township. That is how Lansing becomes the capital of Michigan. The legislature chose a place that nobody lived. That was their solution to the problem of what they felt to be too much lobbying. And at first, they were going to actually name the town Michigan. But Michigan, comma, Michigan, didn't end up becoming the name of Michigan's capital. Instead, they took the name of the township, and that is how Lansing ends up being called Lansing. But that's only part of the story. Any place that is named after a man or a woman invariably has a very interesting story to be told of the man or the woman that the place is named after. And the story of John Lansing Jr. is certainly one such story. I already mentioned that he was born in Albany, New York in the 1750s. And it is from that birth that Lansing's life begins, of course, and eventually he, he ends up becoming fairly prominent in the governance of the New York colony and later the New York state. Lansing was a delegate to the U.S. Constitutional Convention, actually, from the state of New York, having already served in other legal positions, actually. He was an attorney uh, before the Constitutional Convention occurred. And there's a very brief correspondence, actually, even that occurred between Alexander Hamilton and John Lansing Jr. when Hamilton is on his way to the Annapolis Convention that had met the year prior. It was a convention that was organized essentially to address what we're seeing as some problems with the Articles of Confederation, which was what the United States was governed under before the Constitution. And probably the most important thing that happened at the Annapolis Convention was actually that men like Hamilton agreed that there should be another convention the following year that would further address problems in the Articles of Confederation. And that following convention is what became the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. John Lansing Jr. had been an attorney in New York, and he was chosen as one of the New York State delegates to the Constitutional Convention. And had Lansing signed the Constitution, 
and gone down in history as one of the signatories to that great document, he would be a well-known historical figure, perhaps. Probably more well-known than he ended up being, anyways. But Lansing believed that the new constitution overstepped the uh, original purpose of the convention in Philadelphia, which he saw was to fix problems with the Articles of Confederation, but not to completely change the way the United States was governed. Lansing, in, in some, believed that the states were giving up too many rights in adopting the Constitution. So he walks out of the Constitutional Convention, he goes back to the state of New York, and he advocates for the state to reject ratifying the Constitution. Ultimately, that rejection does not occur. New York ratifies the Constitution, and it becomes America's fundamental law, starting in 1789. Lansing, though, would go on to have quite the career after this. He ended up becoming the uh, state's chancellor, which at the time was the highest judicial position one could hold in the state of New York. And later on, he ended up holding other prominent positions, including Chief Justice of the New York State Supreme Court, and was quite involved in politics because, at the time, most men who were involved in politics were the attorneys. They were, after all, seen as those who would logically be in the business of writing laws because they knew the law. So Lansing then ends up being an anti-federalist that nonetheless continued to serve in various roles in the state of New York. As I said, he became the Chief Justice of the New York State Supreme Court, and he later became a regent on the University of the State of New York, which was a governing body that oversaw the state's university system. So he was quite prominent. His ancestry had set him up to some extent to be in a uh, position of prominence. After all, back then, it was not uncommon for a man who came from a fairly well-to-do family to end up becoming fairly well-to-do for himself. And the practice of law in early 1800s America was certainly one of the more prestigious uh, practices, one of the more prestigious professions one could get into. His large family actually ended up leaving um, quite the lineage behind, too, of people that could trace their ancestry back to John Lansing Jr. or his siblings, including, probably most well-known, would be the United States Secretary of State during the First World War, serving in the Woodrow Wilson administration, Robert Lansing. Uh, Robert Lansing's grandfather was one of John Lansing Jr.'s brothers. But what happened to John Lansing Jr.? The mystery surrounding the end of his life is in many ways, I think, one of the more intriguing parts of a connection to the story of Lansing, Michigan, and who it's named after. Lansing left the hotel in Manhattan that he was staying in at the time on the evening of the 12th of December, 1829. The story goes that he went out for a walk and was intending to find a boat that he could mail a letter on. And you may be thinking, well, why would you go to a boat to mail a letter? Well, at the time, mail was oftentimes carried by postal boats or boats that were contracted 
to carry the mail. And if one wanted to mail a letter that was not going to be simply delivered locally, in other words, across country, one would then go find a mailboat to drop the letter off into. And so Lansing evidently left his Manhattan apartment in the hotel he was staying in on the evening of the 12th of December, 1829, to go do this. That is the last anybody knows for certain of John Lansing Jr. What happened to him is a mystery. He disappeared. Body was never found. And so if foul play was involved, there was never any evidence to prove it. And the disappearance of John Lansing Jr. is not something that's ever actually been solved. However, there are a few possibilities to explore of what might have happened to the man that Lansing is ultimately named after. He could have had an accident. He could have fallen into the river, for example, and drowned. He could have had some other type of a naturally occurring accident that would have rendered him in a position where he eventually died, and somehow his body was never found. He could have been the victim of street crime in New York. After all, that was not uncommon at the time for men to run into unfortunate circumstances where they would be robbed or perhaps murdered after being robbed, and maybe that is what ended up happening to Lansing. There is a third intriguing possibility of what happened to John Lansing Jr. And this is really where the mystery of his disappearance comes into the picture. By the time John Lansing Jr. disappeared at the end of 1829, a man by the name of Thurl Weed had already been elected to the New York State Assembly. And Thurl Weed turns out to be one of the state of New York and New York City's most influential politicians in the decades before the Civil War. Lansing, by 1829, as we've discussed, had already become quite involved in some of the important governance structure of New York City, and Thurl Weed quickly rose through the political power structure of the state of New York and, increasingly, New York City. Thurl Weed would be known to history for many of the things that New York City has nowadays that in some ways can be traced back to him, including New York Harbor, the development of the city's railway connections to the rest of the United States, and probably most notably, the work that he did on forming commission to build Central Park and govern Central Park after it was built. When the Whig Party disintegrated over the issue of slavery, Thurl Weed becomes one of the founding fathers of the Republican Party. And he would go on to influence the Lincoln administration and had major political impacts on the United States. So where does he come into our picture? Well, Thurl Weed, having been involved in New York, evidently may have known what happened to John Lansing Jr. And this is where the intrigue element really comes into our story. Thurl Weed died in 1882. And around about the time of his death, his grandson, T.W. Barnes, published his memoirs. And in Weed's memoirs, he wrote that he may have known what happened to John Lansing Jr. He said that Lansing had been murdered by a conspiracy of men who had believed that John Lansing Jr. was standing in the way of their own political ambitions. And Weed claimed that the men who had showed him sources proving this had demanded that Weed 
swore an oath that he would never say anything about this until those men had passed away. Well, by the time Weed's memoirs were published, those men had indeed died, but Weed was reluctant and in the end refused to publish any names of the sources that he claimed to have had. So basically what Weed was saying was that he had information given to him by men who knew what happened to John Lansing Jr. and therefore could solve the mystery possibly, but because he was reluctant to reveal who his sources were, that mystery never got solved beyond the point of Thurl Weed's uh, confession, if you will, or at least admission of knowledge of what might have happened to John Lansing Jr. in the memoirs that Thurl Weed's grandson, T.W. Barnes, published. So it has now been nearly 200 years since John Lansing Jr. disappeared after his evidently fateful late-night stroll in Manhattan in December of 1829. John Lansing Jr.'s legacy, as I said, had quite the impact long-term. His siblings being part of that legacy, whereas his brother's grandson ended up being, as I mentioned previously, the Secretary of State during the First World War, serving in the Woodrow Wilson administration. Lansing's family members also went on to be involved in other aspects of political life, and the family remained quite prominent throughout the middle part of the 1800s. John Lansing Jr.'s widow didn't live very much longer after Lansing himself disappeared. She died in January of 1834 and is buried in Albany, or near Albany, New York. So we have Lansing, Michigan. We have Lansing, New York. We have Lansing, Illinois. Lansing, Kansas. And Lansing, New York, which is where Lansing, Michigan, gets its name. And in doing so, Lansing, Michigan, takes its name from John Lansing, Jr., a man who was connected, in one way or the other, of quite a bit of important aspects of early life in Michigan, and New York State, and around the United States. So the next time you're strolling through downtown Lansing, or you're driving on a highway in Michigan, and you see a sign pointing to head down this highway to head to Lansing, or Lansing is this many miles away, or if you see the name Lansing Community College, the other mentions of this name, you will now have, hopefully, a little bit of an idea of the man and the little bit of the mystery behind the name of Lansing. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.